Rockstar Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because, unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the, on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronic repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Isabel Lopez from the Restart Project, and I'll be your host. I'm joined today by Hugo Valari, Restart. <laughs> He's Restart co-founder, and Simon Werrett, professor of uh, the Department of Science and Technology Studies at UCL. Thank you for joining. <laughs> Hi, as well. So in this episode, we'll be talking about uh, Simon's upcoming book, Thrifty Science, and we'll learn from historical research on repair and about how this work can inform our current practices and current maker cultures. Um, so welcome again to the show, Simon. First of all, what is Thrifty Science? Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on the show, Isabel. Um, Thrifty Science is the topic of a book that I'm just writing. It's uh, coming out early next year. And um, Thrifty Science is a, an attitude to materials. So um, it's uh, looking at materials as something which can be um, made use of. So, so I look at the 17th and 18th centuries and how people approach material things at that time. And uh, what I argue is that they had quite a different idea about that to the way that we think of materials. Um, and um, one of the things they talked about was making use of things. So they said, so rather than just use things, they said you need to make use of them. They put the emphasis on make, I think. Um, in other words, if you have some, some object, some possession, mm -hmm. think about the different ways that you can make uh, it serve different purposes in your, in your life, in your home. Um, so Thrifty Science is the sort of collective of all the, the different practices that they use to not only make use of things, but also to make them endure and last so that they could make use of them as much as possible. So it would also be things like repair, what we would call recycling, um, reuse, repurposing, that kind of thing. And, uh, and I also take that term thrifty science to be a general term. So, so anyone who does that kind of thing, I think is doing thrifty science. So uh, if you're coming up with a new recipe using the leftovers from yesterday's dinner, or you're doing an experiment to find out some new use for expensive scientific instrument, it's still thrifty science. Right, that's interesting because, uh, you know, at, at Restart we run these community, event, um, community events where people come and hack and fix and repair their stuff, right, in a quite like, creative way and very amateur. So are they being thrifty also? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think I think that's a, a perfect example of thrifty science. So it, it's also often so it's very experimental, trying out new things, um, and it's also a communal enterprise. So it involves people sharing knowledge and skills and um, uh, swapping ideas, um, and I think that's a, that's actually a big part of it. Right. So uh, could you tell us a bit more about your background academically? How did you come to study about repair? Sure. Uh, so I'm a historian of science, um, and um, science is something that we tend to talk about very much in terms of innovation. So, so all the emphasis, if you read a typical history book on science, it'll tell you who came up with um, ideas first or who came up with inventions first. And uh, lots of the focus is on innovation and, and discovery. And what I try to do, and I, and I think a lot of historians are trying to do at the moment, is to think about the more everyday, routine, mundane aspects of science 
um, and explore them because they haven't been given much attention in the historical literature. So looking at things like um, repair, recycling, the way that people make things endure in their laboratories, how do they clean the laboratory, how do they repair stuff, that's what, I'm, that's what I was interested in, in trying to get at. And actually it turns out that um, these sorts of repair and recycling practices are themselves very innovative, so, uh, so they're really important. The um, original, uh, the sort of founder of experiment in science, Francis Bacon, said that um, these sorts of practices should actually be, you know, are really interesting and important. So um, there isn't a strong division, as it turns out, between maintaining and repairing and innovation anyway. Um, but you get a, an interesting picture if you, if you turn away from innovation to other things. It's interesting how you mention innovation uh, because we've we, we've seen waves of interest in how new technologies is, are driven by this desire to innovate and often leave behind perfectly fine products and practices and which end up being forgotten. Do you find that part of your role um, in your academic uh, practices to kind of reconcile this two sides in a sense of a same coin. Like there's wonderful innovation even in the existing products and thrift science seems to look at that. Absolutely. So, so being thrifty, I think, is actually one of the origins of experiment because what it asked people to do back, way back in the 16th, 17th century was to come up with new ways of doing things. You know, if you have a chair or a piece of wood or a piece of brass, what can you do with it? What else can you do with it? Uh, if, if you have a piece of a, a broken piece of furniture, how can you put it to use, put it into service is the, the term they use. So it's actually, it encourages experiment, it encourages innovation. Um, and so it's not that maintenance repair is opposed by any means, but it's actually a source of, of innovation and an important one. In doing the research for uh, the book, have you come across previous instances where there would be specific obstacles to being thrifty, uh, where there were barriers kind of created in order to prevent people from being able to be thrifty and experiment and uh, innovate in the things they already had? Well, that's a fantastic question. And I think, I think since the 19th century, there has been a strong um, sort of cultural change, which sees um, innovation as something that only specialised kinds of people do. Um, and uh, that, I mean, I think innovation and has happened, so let me backtrack a little bit. In the 17th and 18th century, I think the home is a really important place for experimentation. So, so you don't really have laboratories where people go and do experiments. They, they experiment at home. It could be men or women doing that. Um, and they could be doing it in all kinds of different things, in the garden, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, um, in the uh, parlour, using the stuff around them. And that's where innovation happens a lot of the time. Um, in the 19th century, you get basically the men moving out of the home into more specialised places like laboratories and museums um, and factories. And then the claim is that innovation happens there and what happens at the home, in the home, is just sort of housework. And that's, that's then supposed to be something that women are doing, um, where men are the ones out doing the, the proper innovation. So, um, uh, so I think that's, a, that's already a big obstacle, because it implies that what happens at home isn't really 
you know, proper innovation. And yet it's a very creative experimental space. We, in, in our direct experience through our events, we were coming across more and more specific barriers that are put by uh, manufacturers of uh, current products uh, to prevent people from repairing them or even to prevent acknowledging that there is a problem. So part of our interest in uh, fighting for the right to repair is in a sense helping for this thrifty modes of, of operation to be able to flourish again. And, uh, and that's where the community approach can really bring benefit. Yes, absolutely. And um, so, so I think you definitely see a trend towards, first of all, um, the specialization of material things. So I think in the, in the early modern period, 17th and 18th century, people liked simple, they liked materials that could do lots and, and objects that could do lots of things. And in the 19th century, that switches around and people like things that can do one thing very well. So there's a kind of specialization of, of function. Um, and the more that that's happened, the, the harder repair gets, I think, because um, you, you, the more specialized a, an, an object is, um, the more, say, technology it involves, and then it becomes difficult, potentially difficult to repair. Um, and certainly the, the uh, kind of commodity uh, logic uh, wants people to buy as many objects as, as you know, commodities as possible. So um, uh, if they were repairable, then that's a problem, uh, and so they make it difficult for them to be repaired, which doesn't mean that they can't be, and they can't be reused, and you can't be thrifty with them, but that's, the, that's certainly, I think, a trend. Speaking of making it difficult to repair, I just wanted to uh, link with this week's news. We've just recently found out that Apple, uh, one of our favorite topics, mm -hmm. has finally acknowledged a serious flaw uh, with the keyboards of its most recent laptops. It's this called uh, so-called butterfly, butterfly keyboard technology, which has allowed them to make a really, really, really thin keyboard. And yet increasingly there were reports from the public and from journalists um, having trouble with a keyboard uh, stopping to work or when they were hitting a key was continuing to put on the screen more F's or R's or whatnot. And uh, eventually they had to acknowledge it after forcing a lot of people to perform repairs outside of warranty, costing up to $700, something incredible, just because of the design of the product preventing to change just one key, for example. So it's good news, I guess. And have you, by chance, uh, uh, come across this, this problem at your department? Um, I've come across this problem because I have one of those Macs. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I noticed that from, from when I, I started using it. Um, and uh, so it's interesting to hear that it's been identified as a, as a general problem. And I think it's interesting because, I mean, I looked, for example, at um, Robert Hooke, who was an inventor in the 17th century, uh, member of the Royal Society. Um, and he talked quite a lot about designing new instruments. And he was very particular about saying, and I think this was a this was a general concern at the time, that when you design a new thing, you should make it very accessible. So even if it's quite a complicated instrument, you can take it apart and you can get at all the bits inside so that you can repair them. And he makes a point when he's discussing his inventions that um, that he's done that so that 
um, it will be easy to repair, even though it's quite a complicated instrument. And I don't think Mac are really doing that. Not that I would have the <laughs> the skills to uh, uh, deal with, you know, specialised uh, computer equipment anyway. But uh, nevertheless, um, it's uh, it's quite a, a noticeable change in how people approach these things. Well, you you'll be happy to know that in case you haven't had it repaired yet, even beyond warranty, you can now get it repaired for free by Apple itself. And in case any of our listeners had to pay uh, an extremely high amount of money for that repair, you can now claim it back and they'll refund everyone. What's outrageous to us is that it didn't it took a long time for the manufacturer to acknowledge what was obvious uh, from the press and from concerned citizens. And so this mounting pressure finally led them to uh, agree to fix something that they should have fixed to begin with from day one. Right. Um, so I'm thinking like we're talking about this current scenario and current obstacles to repair and then uh, the repair scenario in the 17th and 18th century, right? Um, so in the current throwaway culture, when we have access to all of these devices, they're cheap. Most of us uh, might not care about recycling them or might not care about repairing them. Like, how can we learn from these practices of thrift science and these all potential ways of making use of things and making them last longer, making them have more uses? How can we learn about that and apply it to our current way of yeah, dealing with devices? Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a really interesting question, and I think one one optimistic thing is I think people don't actually need to learn it because it's just something that people do anyway. Mm. You know, if you have if you have a possession, you tend to want to make it endure and you know, get as good a life out of it as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, so quite a lot of work has to be done to stop you from being able to do that. And it's very interesting. I've just been looking at um, uh, the introduction of disposable goods in hospitals, for example, in back in the 50s, um, 50s and 60s. And so when they introduced things like disposable um, syringes and, and um, uh, blankets and things, uh, people who worked in the hospitals just used them again when they weren't supposed to. And they had to be trained not to use them again. Yeah. So so the, the, the natural thing, I think, is to is to do the kind of things that we're talking about. Right. And then, and then a lot of work gets done to stop you, to put obstacles in in the way of of that happening. So you're not being able to get into the, the innards of the device or um, uh, planned obsolescence, all that kind of thing. Um, I mean, another thing, uh, another thing that's that's changed, I think, is that um, today we we think there's a very strong division between production which happens in factories and businesses and so on, and consumption, which is what people at home do. And I think in the period I look at, 16th, 17th, 18th century, there's, they don't have that kind of division. So the home is just as productive a place as, as it is a consumption, a space of consumption. Um, and that's why, for example, they don't, I don't, they don't have a term for recycling in that period. And I think that's because they don't think in terms of buying something, consuming it, using it up and then having it as waste. Um, they just think of things as constantly being reworked. Uh, I call them, inc- I call, I say that material things in the early modern period are, are incomplete objects. In other words, things don't have a, an end to life. They're just assumed that they'll carry on in some capacity um, for, for a very long time across generations, potentially. Um, and then what you do as a householder is you 
think of things to do with them when they're broken or you think of new uses for them. So, um, so you don't have that strong division between production and consumption. Um, everyone is producing and consuming all the time. Um, so you don't have recycling um, or waste because everything is constantly being reworked. Um, and I think there are lessons in that for how we, how we might operate today. You're listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM, and we're talking with Simon Werret about early modern practices of repair. So Simon, we were talking now about the concept of waste and recycling, right? Uh, so directly, like, I'd like to ask you, how have we changed uh, in the way we understand these concepts? Yeah, well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, fascinating kind of etymological question. So if you look at the words that we use around waste and the history of them, that can tell you a lot. So in the 17th, 18th century, they, they do say waste, but it doesn't, it's very rarely used as a general category. Um, the most common way people would use it is, is in medicine. So if you, you get consumption, then you will waste away. Your muscles will waste. But what they more often do is they talk about particular kinds of material. So they would talk, for example, about rubbish, which is the stuff left over when you knock a building down, which is related to rubble. Um, they talk about trash, which is the um, bits and pieces left over in, a, in like a shipyard that you might use for... Um, uh, you know, making ropes or something like that. So they, they're different categories of stuff, and the name refers to the use of them. So there's not actually a sense that they're waste. They're just something that is out currently, you know, not having, not being put to use, but it will be in the future as some other material. I think it's only in the 19th century that you really get the sense of a general abstract category of waste, and that's because this idea of a a uh, kind of process of production and consumption and using up a thing um, comes into play. Um, so it's the time of the, the rise of utilitarianism, for example. Um, and, uh, um, and it's also a period when you get the specialization. So rather than valuing things because they have lots of different uses, you value something because it can do one thing well. But if it can only do one thing well, once it stops being able to do that, then it's not much use and you can't really do anything else with it. Um, so I was reading the other day about someone who, uh, as a great example of uh, specialization, so he's a Victorian inventor. I have to investigate this, so I don't know, I don't know if this is true, but apparently he invented a, a device that would allow ducks to get through a hole in a fence without <laughs> being followed by rats. <laughs> and you just think, you know, the mind boggles, but. That's a kind of specialized device. That, that idea of having very, very particular specialized devices is very Victorian. Um, and the problem with it is it solves problems very well, but it produces stuff that you can't do anything with once it's broken. And that's, the, that's what becomes waste. So I think the early modern period is much less of that. Um, and, uh, and they don't have that sort of sense of, it, of a general useless category of stuff. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about how, how could you go back to, to that kind of uh, conception. So you mentioned earlier that uh, repair happened very much uh, as, as an innovative practice in 
early modern period in, in the home. And how, how did repair used to take place? What was people's approach and how did networks of knowledge and contacts or skills uh, emerge in that context? Well, I, I mentioned it's a, it's a communal practice. So I think it's something that you learn from your family um, and friends and acquaintances. Um, and so first and foremost, repair is something that happens at home. Um, there are lots of manuscript books uh, which record repair practices um, and th what I would call thrifty practices of experimenting in, in say, in, you know, making new recipes and so on. Um, and they tell you how to clean, how to, how to maintain things. Um, and people would swap uh, knowledge and skills. Uh, and uh, so the recipe books will often say, you know, I got this recipe for um, cleaning wood from, you know, the next door neighbor or from my cousin. Um, and then if there were certain kinds of things that required a bit more skill, and then you had traveling repair people, so uh, tinkers and uh, chair weavers and so on, and they would turn up uh, on the back door and knock on the door and say, you know, do you have anything to mend? And you would get those things mended by them. Um, and they would also walk around the streets and, and do their cries, and you'd take a saucepan to them to get it, to get it repaired. Um, and then there are much more specialist menders who would have shops, uh, artisans, uh, and you might take something to them um, if it was a quadrant uh, or some fairly complex bit of uh, equipment, and you might take it to them to be repaired. Um, I think the most fascinating one of all is the China Riveter. So people who sold China uh, would also rivet broken China. So they basically staple it back together, which is an art that I you know, wonder at, because uh, to make a, a nice watertight China cup by stapling two pieces together you know, requires a, a bit of skill. Um, but that's what they did. And until the 19th century, when they had glues that were strong enough to repair China, um, that's, what they, that's what they did. And you can still, you can still go online and, and buy these old uh, stapled, riveted, uh, cups and bowls and things, and I think they're fascinating to, to look at. Wow. So repair was very visible and yet extremely functional. Yes, and I think it's interesting that um, people didn't try to hide repair. So there are paintings by Hogarth of fam well-to-do families in the 18th century, and they have broken and repaired cups and teapots and things on the table. Um, it wasn't something that you sort of put in the, in the background, uh, but it's just a part of everyday life. So um, having, having repaired, if you had a nice china set that had a, the spout and the handle on the teapot repaired, it's still a nice china set and you would show it off in your, in your family portrait. Nice. It's very interesting. It seems all connected to how we understand waste and how we understand recycling, reusing, remaking, right? Like there's no point in having something on a corner having no function, so you would openly try to repair it and try to make use of it. So that's something I think we could, yeah, be inspired about. Um, I was thinking, like you were saying, when we talked about this um, duck hole invention, it seems like when things get more specialized, they get harder to repair. But I was thinking, like, how can they, how can we like promote innovation, which is still sustainable and have gadgets that, despite specialized, can still allow us to be thrifty, uh, make use of them, repair them. Yeah. Well, the key thing about thrift. So today, when we talk about thrift, we think it means saving money. And to be thrifty is to save your pennies. But that isn't actually quite what it means in the early modern period. In the 17th and 18th century, it means about finding a balance between spending and making use of what you already have. 
So uh, between access and um, stewardship, if you like. So the implication of that is it's okay to have um, lots of high-tech, complicated, specialised commodities, but you should also pay attention to the stuff that's already there and the old stuff and the, the simple stuff. And it's about... So I think, um, you know, the way I think of thrifty science is that it's about finding a balance between those two things. So it's not about getting rid of your MacBook or your, um, you know, complicated machinery um, or your specialised things, but it's about balancing ownership and use of those with finding out and making use of, of the other stuff that's around. It might be old things, it might be broken things, it might be just materials that are ready to hand. But it, the balance is the focus rather than saving. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned in... Um in the draft of the book that we, we've been able to see, that in the, the history of an object includes the knowledge about that object. And, and so a product, um, an older product, a more repairable, would include potentially in itself uh, the knowledge around repairing it and the awareness about the importance of keeping it going. And so I was wondering whether uh, you think that the progressive disappearance of products, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about potentially VHS uh, uh, tape players uh, that could be disassembled and we could see how they work and how each more analog part uh, contributes to making it work. Uh, can, with, with its disappearance, also the knowledge and the expectations about a product's design and repairability might start to fade away. And so where we see more and more products that are short-lived and uh, disposable, it kind of brings with itself like an ethos of expecting more disposability around us. Well, that, that's really interesting. And I think that's where um, projects like Restart are so important. Because in science and te technology studies, we talk about um, tacit knowledge. So these are embodied skills. Um, so if I ask you to write down, how do you ride a bicycle? It's actually pre it's pretty hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> but you do know how to ride a bicycle. Um, so you have this tacit knowledge. And everything involves tacit knowledge. So, so um, uh, uh, you know, how, how to use a record player, um, uh, how, to, how to cook an egg, that involves tacit knowledge, and you learn that. I mean, you don't think about it, but you learn it. And so I think you're absolutely right that um, it's important. I mean, another lesson from science and technology studies is that we should always think about the material as also social. So, so a term that I, I use uh, a lot in my work is so, what, what they call socio-materiality. In other words, whenever you talk about stuff, technology or objects or things, um, they're always also connected to people. Um, and uh, you have to know about the people and you have to manage people properly to get them to work. So I think one, le one sort of historical sociological lesson for thinking about repair is that there's always that human element there as well. And you can, if you, you can have the thing, but if you lose the social and human side of it, the tacit knowledge, then it can be useless. And that's why a community... Uh, a communal sort of shared enterprise is so important because it maintains that sort of human social side of the use of objects and technology um, and uh, it keeps that tacit knowledge alive and I think that's really that's really critical exactly as you say for for keeping things going and keeping them in repair.
Wonderful. That's very interesting. Yeah, so uh, thank you, Simon, for joining us today. Um, thank you. This was, yeah, thank you for your time. And before we close up the show, we're going to have our volunteer, Alvin, with a short announcement. Do you have a knack for starting up dead electronic devices and electrical appliances? Our team of volunteers are what keeps the restart project running. We are looking for more men and women to join our community, our monthly restart parties, which happen all over London and are spreading across England, are a great way to meet people and learn new skills. Visit the restartproject.org. Be part of a movement that puts life back into the world of electronics. And finally, if you'd like help fixing anything with a plug or a battery, this weekend we have two restart parties. One on Saturday in Party in the Park, London Fields, hosted by Hagney Fixers, and one on Sunday at Crystal Palace Library of Things. Uh, find out more at our website, therestartproject.org, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. And finally, thanks to OptoNoise and Dougie's Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs, and discarded electronics. We're here live every week on Tuesdays at 1.30. Until next week. Bye.